Hello and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. It's great to be with you again this week. My name is Will Stockdale. I am a ministry associate with Ministry of State. And I say A and not D because I am here, as always, with another ministry associate with Ministry of State, Robert Hassler, good friend, faithful husband, faithful Christian, father, faithful father. should have included that. that as oh, my goodness. I know. I don't want to imply anything, so I'm sorry. <laughs> But uh, here with you, we're actually in the same building, but in opposite rooms, because as we have tried before, um, due to us trying to figure out our mixer situation for recording, uh, we were going to record off one mic, but that tends to be somewhat awkward. And so we're like, you know what, we're going to split up and we're going to record in different areas and then, and then uh, just do this over Zoom. But Robert, how are you doing on this fine May day? Oh, dude, things are great. Um I just went and got lunch with some friends and was walk was walking around the city. One, I noticed a ton of dead cicadas everywhere from Brood X. We didn't get them down in Woodbridge, so whenever I come up closer to the city, it's like I get to experience it, uh, which is definitely weird. Um, but then also, it's like ninety degrees. It's just like summer is upon us in the city. It's wild. It um, uh, but uh, things are going well. I mean, it's just a kind of a, a crazy. Uh, time right now, just a lot of things feel kind of in flux and tumultuous. And um, I mean, the biggest thing that I've noticed being in the city now more is sort of the uh, the mass differential between people and how they're responding to COVID and coming out of COVID. I mean, have you noticed sort of that process? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, if, if what you mean is, do you mean the ways people are reacting in public? Uh, I mean, if that's what you mean, the clearest marker I see is whether or not people are wearing masks in public. I was working out with a friend this morning, and he said that it, at Whole Foods, they said if you're fully vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. And so he's like, you know, he had to stop and do a double take, and he reread it, and it said, yeah, you don't have to wear a mask. And so he was like, we're fully vaxxed. And so he walked in, and uh, he was like, definitely got some interesting stares from people who were looking at him. And so I think that's a pretty common experience for everyone. Uh, is that what you're seeing out in, out in Woodbridge? Well, you know, Woodbridge has always been a little bit, I think, um, well, I don't even know what word it is. Not anti-mask, but like, you know, no one wore masks outside in Woodbridge um, that I saw. And so that was definitely a phenomenon that I only saw when I came into the city. Um, but it is very interesting as we're sort of coming into this moment where I think over 50% of the country now is vaccinated. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people have the antibodies or had, had COVID and never covered. And so we're sort of, you know, and CDC keeps coming out every week with sort of new guidelines and sort of opening things up more and more. The, the number of green check marks on their little list keeps getting bigger. Um, I know churches are transitioning uh, now with, with congregations being mostly vaccinated to, you know, not wearing masks and, and having much more sort of a normal church service, you know, I think there is this level of sort of like awkwardness of like, you know, how do we dance together? Like what's, you know, who's kind of making the first step, who's not making the net, you know, it's just, it's a really interesting time as we sort of kind of all learn how to re-socialize with one another. Um, it's just, it's just different. It's really hard to put to words, but it's just different. And to that point, there's a, 
a Rachel Maddow clip that was some somewhat going viral in which she was talking about how it was going to take a lot of retraining for her to reacclimate to a world where masks are no longer mandatory. That was taken as a as a splice that was, you know, her talking about how she viewed people as potentially the enemy or anti-science. But the whole clip, and this is what I was told, so I'm being trusting here, uh, is that she was saying, hey, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to need to make some adjustments here. And that was more of a positive kind of view. And I think, you know, for, for a lot of people, that's a very honest assessment. There are a lot of ways in which people, um, new norms that people put in place, new measures of protection that people put in, um, and that varied from some who never wore masks, some who did, um, some who got so attached to the idea of not wearing one is going to feel like being naked, those who find the idea of wearing a mask abhorrent. But everybody, to some degree, has made some kind of change for a very long period of time. I mean, there was a study that, uh, that they did that if you want to develop a habit, you need to do it for 28 days in a row in order to really have it ingrained. Well, we've done something for over 400 days in a row. And now that we're getting out of that, it's going to take a lot of work and intensive focus to kind of reset, which I think is one of the things that people are saying is that this is kind of a, a great reset. Uh, there was an Arthur Brooks piece that he came out with about, hey, this is your chance to, there's not really a clean slate, that's that's kind of a delusion, I think. But there is a time where you can, you can use this as like a, a New Year's resolution, but it's much bigger than that in many ways. And so, you know, one of the things I think I want, wanted to talk about with you and maybe consider and how we can consider as Christians loving our neighbors, how do we think about, you know, being loving in that way and no longer in this new transition? And what might be some areas where people are still um, struggling or what are some areas where we might feel really still in a funk after uh, a year of difference? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I'll, before I get into it, I mean, as somebody who already uh, had the problem of, you know, people going in for handshakes and me going in for fist bumps and that awkwardness, we just, it literally just happened to me five minutes ago. Um, I'm really thankful for this time because it seems like that's happening to everybody. So I don't feel like I'm the one loser who doesn't know how to greet people. <laughs> um, so in some ways, I'm raising, right? Was that your parents not raise you right? I know. Right. Um, but I, uh, so in some ways I'm kind of relieved. Uh, no, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, it, it, it's like we spent a year asking this question and sort of finally coming to the solution, uh, during the pandemic and now coming out of the pandemic, it's like, we're faced with the exact same challenge, but reverse. Um, and that's incredibly difficult to do for people. Um, I mean, I think you really have to default to, you know, what is your perception of uh, Christian liberty and what is, how do you, how do you mean that? How do you define it? I spent a lot of time over the last year writing papers and working on this question, um, because I think it's, it's so important right now, um, in terms of, uh, uh, those who are in the majority, uh, making sure that they're not being domineering and being unloving to their dissenting uh, brothers and sisters, 
And then at the same time, there's an equal obligation on those on the minority um, to not uh, sort of tyrannize the majority. And that I think that's been a, a you've seen that sort of real life wrestling going on in the church for the last year. And I think it's going to continue to happen. Um, I think really where you have to go is what are the essentials of the faith? What are the things that we cannot, um, or maybe a better way of saying is what are the fundamentals of the church? Um, and how do we get back to doing those, uh, normally now that, um, the, the sort of the civil and, and ecclesial authorities say that that's fine. And I think one thing that we will need to do um, is really emphasize uh, <laughs> returning to the ordinary means of grace. I mean, the question of saying wearing a mask or not wearing a mask is, are you being a good Christian? Well, I would sort of push back on that, the whole framing and just say, why are we, why is that the, the, the litmus test? Um, let's go back to the, the fundamentals. Let's go back to the things um, that really define what is a Christian. And I think those things are word, sacrament, and prayer. Yeah, absolutely correct. The means of grace, which is where we want to get. But I, I do want to maybe not do some prognostication, not interested in that so much, but maybe just kind of a reasonable assessment of where we are. I was listening to a, a friend recommended that I listen to a podcast by Andy Crouch, and he was talking about the from his Praxis Labs and uh, it's talking about the way this recovery might work. And he made the point, you know, for, for a lot of people, professionals, uh, the pandemic, at least financially, ended up great. I mean, came up with more earnings. Maybe their home value went up. You have new centibillionaires that are out there. Um, but you also have a lot of people, a lot of small businesses of 10 people or so that are just gone. You have a lot of people whose lives were wrecked who um, had family members that committed suicide. Had a lot of people who lost loved ones to the virus. And so it, there's not a uniform experience for the Christian, and specifically the Christian, to think of as they interact with others. And that is something important for us to remember that um, everybody is going to be different. We're the same, that we're all affected by this, but we're all going to be affected in a different way. You know, as we've come out of this, I, I, I don't think I realize just how foggy and fuzzy and stagnant my thinking and the headspace was over the last year until there was actually opportunity to kind of be moving about in a more normal setting. So I'm kind of realizing these things uh, about my own experience that um, I just wasn't aware of. I just had no, I mean, I, I was, I figured that it was going to, that I was kind of affected, but I didn't know how or to what extent. And there's going to be these realizations that come about with time for us. And so one, one of the questions I want to punt over to you is what are the, some of the various areas in which we need to be aware that people might just be reacting differently to things? I mean, and I'll just say this one more, you know, right as we're recording, tragically, another shooting has happened in California. Eight people that last reported that I saw have been murdered. And we have seen a spate, a, just a, a rise this year shootings and um it's hard not to see a correlate or there's definitely correlation how strong it is i don't know but between those who were you know the, the pandemic and this increase in shooting of people were trapped up as things start to open more and more and, and so there's clearly uh mental health and isolation problems and the feelings of alienation that have been increased so 
that's one of the ones that comes to the top of my mind um, that is, is, a, is a consequence and a reason for us to be present in each other's lives. For sure. I know. I think alienation is absolutely, and, and the sort of the, the mental effects and psychological effects and spiritual effects that it's had on people um, is something that we're absolutely going to be cognizant of. I think also I, I would probably default to saying something along the lines of we need to recognize how much of this pandemic was politicized and the effects of the politicization has had um, on us as an, as a people, um, as congregations, as neighborhoods. Um, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think, but like we had one, we had a very consequential election in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, uh, it's, it's hard not to see what happened um, and what was going on outside the lens of, you know, what was going on in our political realm. And so I think one thing we're going to need to do as we come out of the pandemic is really reassess how we politicize events, how we politicize tragedies, um, how we politicize really everything that, that happens, um, in our lives. You know, a lot of us have spent time now cooped indoors, much more susceptible to our own echo chambers, scrolling through social media feeds, watching the news, um, not necessarily interacting with people uh, who come from different backgrounds, uh, different perspectives. And I mean that in the most casual sort of way. I mean, if I'm on the Metro in sort of a normal course of events, you know, any day I could bump into somebody with radically different positions on me on, in terms of everything. Right. And so that it's that sort of everyday bumping in and rubbing shoulders with people who are different than you um, that you sort of learn to live in harmony and live together and um, understand different perspectives. A lot of us haven't been doing that for the last year. And so I think that's going to be something that we have to remember. It's going to be awkward, especially in the church, because that's going to probably be the first place Christians feel comfortable going back to in person um, and, and being together with. And, you know, it's very likely that we're going to, we're going to sort of take for granted conversations that we've been having with people a lot more similar to us that we've chosen to self-select near uh, in the last year and interacting with people who are different than us um, or, you know, take different views or, or hold different positions, you know, how do we, like I said before, how do we do that dance together? Um, and I think we're going to need to be really cognizant of the way that things have in our experience have been politicized and how we need to resist that. That's something that I'm really wrestling with um, as I sort of reintegrate myself into society. Right. So you mentioned church. And so, now is probably a good time for us to go straight into it with talking about the means of grace. And the reason I wanted to talk about the means of grace, as you, as you said, they're the word, the sacraments, and prayer, which is in the Reformed tradition, those are the means of grace that we believe God has given to his people in order to commune with him and with each other. In the midst of us trying to resettle and trying to figure out what is a reset, how are we going to get back into this life? Um, there's there's a, a number of questions about how to do things. There's a number of questions about what it's going to be like to be together in worship, but we can be sure that we are on stable, good footing if we pursue these three things. If we pursue the word together, the sacraments together, and prayer together. Um, the word and prayer, actually, interestingly enough, can be on our own. The sacraments can't be, which is a, a unique thing about them. But I just let's kind of walk through them one at a time. 
And so when you think of the word being a means of grace that is a benefit for us right now at this unique time, what are some ways that you see it as a benefit? Yeah, well, I think the number one benefit of of the word as a means of grace in this particular moment um, is that I think that the, the tendency, the overwhelming temptation, even more so than normal times right now, I think is going to be going into the, the time of the service where the word is preached to expect, okay, here's where the word is going to address everything that's going on and how I'm perceiving the world around me, sort of the great, you know, how we're resetting, how we're adjusting, blah, blah, blah. And I need the word to speak into that right now um, and, and sort of conform to my opinions about those things. And I think what's going to be really helpful for the church is to really see the word preached as an ordinary means of grace in order to sort of realign people to the church and what the Lord has to say to his people. Um, not f- uh, having the word filtered through our sort of cultural lens, but having the word permeate everything that we, uh, everything about who we are and seeing the world through that lens of the, of the, of the word. And I think that's, that's really important um, because I know more so than normal, I think it's a, it's, I think it's a normal temptation, but I think more so, you know, I have sat during sermons this past year and I've sat and been like, well, why isn't the pastor talking about this issue? Why isn't the pastor addressing this thing and realizing like, oh, I am, I'm putting my worldly cultural expectations onto the word instead of the word informing my, you know, X, Y, Z, everything else. And I think that's going to be really important. I mean, what, what are you thinking about the word? Well, uh, in the public proclamation of it, um, as, as I said, when scripture speaks, God speaks. When, when scripture is proclaimed and stated, uh, there is an act that is occurring. It is a spiritual reality. I, one of my favorite professors just made this point in class. I remember one time where he was like, if you are looking to see the church uh, marching victoriously, that happens every Sunday when the preached word and the gospel is proclaimed. Darkness is literally pushed back. The light is shining forth. Uh, the gospel is, is extending. I, I, it's easy to forget that. And I think we look for perhaps what we would call tangible ways. We would look for some type of restoration or we would perhaps look for a sinner coming to repentance. Good things. Um, they are though derived from the preached proclamation of the gospel from the pulpit as delivered to God's people. And um, a lot of times it is so important for us to realign what we think is happening in truth of what God's word says is happening and let the belief come to that. So the truth is that the preached word is a, a manifestation of God's victory over sin and death that when the word is preached, we are understanding, hopefully, more clearly the power of the Spirit, Christ seated on the throne, is in session with the Father in heaven. Those are realities. And as we're sitting in our pews or our chairs in church, we need to make sure that we're reminding ourselves that that's what we're participating in, that as, as we are mysteriously participating with Christ and what he's doing on the Lord's day, uh, 
the, the magnificent, marvelous event that is recorded in Revelation 4, where the saints are around the throne and there are the creatures there, that we are mysteriously participating in that same process on Sunday. Uh, and it happens uniquely on Sunday, which maybe is beyond the scope of this talk right now. But uh, so when I think about the word preached or proclaimed, I, we are meant, we are people primarily of revelation. We are revelation and reason. So revelation that is given. We are initially, we are passive. We are recipients of revelation that is given us. And as revelation is preached in the pulpit, we are meant to sit under it, to take it and let it wash over us. And then on the other side, I also think of the importance and, um, of meditating and reading the word, of having a quiet time. I know we mentioned last week the idea that in some evangelical circles, it's more important to have a quiet time to go to church, which is a mistake. It's probably more important to pray, actually. Uh, but we are given God's word to study, to meditate. David said, I have, I have stored, put your word in my heart, so I may not sin against you. Um, how can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? Um, so, you know, that, that, is, that is a means as well. But I think focusing on that and letting us soak in scripture and what it has for us. And then the second one is sacraments. And so we have uh, baptism and uh, communion for the Lord's Supper. Goodness gracious. I literally, I just took my sacraments ordination exam last week and I'm like, the oral portion otherwise i would have totally felt like rick perry right there during the presidential that's right you forgot it's the third thing yeah that's great uh technically i'm worse than rick and that there's only two so so let's start with baptism how is baptism witnessed in a church service a beneficial reminder, not just for the recipient of baptism, but for that family and the other congregants present. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, particularly in a time where we've all been separated from each other for a year, coming back together and seeing the ways that, you know, baptism is this is the sign and symbol of the covenant family of the the united uh, body of Christ and. I think that's really important for people um, who've mostly lived, you know, the last year as essentially isolated individuals or at least isolated families and coming back together and realizing, oh, this is a covenant community. This is, um, I'm bound to these people um, in a very real and mysterious way, uh, but that I have obligations to these people that I have, that my in his, uh, for a lack of a term, my, my rights and my freedoms are, are limited because I am bound to this, this covenant community. Um, and I, I mean, personally, I hope that that really um, leads to an explosion in church involvement for folks. I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I've witnessed um, church communities. I'm not speaking about my current one. So anyone who's listening, don't read into this, but, you know, I have witnessed and heard of church communities that, you know, it's like five or six people that kind of do everything. And then everyone else sort of, you know, comes in on, you know, comes in on Sundays, five minutes before service leaves five minutes after. And I think as we come and, and really are serious about, you know, things like baptism, I think the idea of, 
oh, I need to be involved. I need to be doing things. I need to be self-sacrificing. I need to be serving the body. Um, I mean, that's what I really hope comes out of all of this. And I think, you know, not to, not to brush past baptism and go straight into the Lord's supper, but um, I think there's this, you could say everything also about the Lord's supper as well. Um, I think that, uh, well, I mean, I don't know. I, I, it'd be interesting to know what your opinion is on a lot of this stuff, but like, you know, after a year of um, drive-by communion, you know, how do we, how do we rethink communion as a means of grace uh, and tying it specifically to being in person at the table? I mean, how do you think about that kind of thing? Well, I mean, I'll steal something that you were sharing with me uh, earlier when we were talking is that it may not for a lot of people be as magnificent as is hoped. There is a lot of pressure. Some people who haven't experienced communion, look, there are a lot of churches that have, and there's a lot of churches that meet in person, particularly places like DC or perhaps New York, there hasn't been as much of that. So there may be some buildup of what it would be like. Um, and we can somewhat uh, maybe romanticize it in a way that, that puts an undue pressure on it. But uh, again, it goes down to are we really considering in our head and hearts what is taking place in the Lord's Supper? That, uh, again, you can have the Lutheran, you can have the Roman Catholic, you can have the Zwingli or the Reformed beliefs of what's happening, but particularly for us in the Reformed in the right tradition, <laughs> is the belief that in communion, we are mysteriously lifted up to the heavenly places, um, to spiritually feed on Christ and his benefits for us through the taking of the bread and the wine, that it is a foretaste of the feast that we have, that it is a real participation with him. Um, that does much to nourish us. That should heavily prioritize the, the Lord's Supper for us and how we consider it throughout the week. Um, and there's something that I really love about the Lord's Supper taking place at the end of the sermon where the um, pastor gets up there and does his best, you know, he exegetes, he presents, he gives an application and benediction, and then, or yeah, and then gives Lord's Supper. And it's kind of like the Lord's Supper is there for all that was lacking and incomplete in the Lord's Supper, in the sermon is going to be tied up and kind of like, hey, let's just go eat together. Mm-hmm. Let's just come be in Christ's presence, let him fill up maybe wasn't understood or what maybe was left unsaid. Let's trust him to take care of these things after having faithfully served and knowing that we are inadequate for such a task. Uh, and so, yeah, the Lord's Supper is, is a way that we are not only united to Christ, but again, um, we, are, we are in communion with each other there. We are a communion of saints. And the Lord's Supper does something else in, this, in our uh, you know, hyper-inclusive world. The idea that communion marks us apart from the world. Uh, It sets us in contradistinction to those who don't believe in Jesus. It is is a meal for all believers, but it is not a a meal for all people. It is for God's chosen ones. Um, And so that separates us and then reminds us of what we're a part of, the communion of which we belong and whose we are. In terms of baptism, I love what you're saying about the importance of like church service and letting that be a boon to people serving the church. Again, to go to the confession, it's like, how can we 
be, uh, how can we benefit from our baptism? One of the ways is to be grateful for it, uh, to remember it, to remember what it signifies, that God is faithful to his promises for us on our behalf. Um, and so both of those are very real ways that, that we are um, recipients of this grace from him for all of our lives. And, uh, and, and I think it's a real witness to the children also and new converts when we talk about our baptism in such a way that it's not, it is a one-time act. Yes, you, you do not repeat baptism, but it is perpetual in its purposes and its benefits to us. It keeps rolling along in our lives and it doesn't stop just after the service. Uh, but lastly, as we wrap up prayer, but in what ways are, is prayer a means of grace? Well, you know, I've thought about this in two different ways. The, the first is what you, you mentioned earlier, what we were talking about before we're recording. And, you know, this is not just true of prayer, but of all the spiritual disciplines um, and, and even the sacraments like communion, you know, there is going to be this, for lack of a better term, buildup of, you know, you know, what is it going to be like when we finally are all partaking, a, you know, together at the altar and, you know, I'm, I'm just going to put in a word for, you know, the, the crowd of going through the motions. I, I think that there's a lot of value in, um, you know, not demanding these incredible emotional experiences uh, in the spiritual disciplines. I mean, per, speaking from personal experience, um, nothing kept me farther from reading the word and praying, going back to what you were initially asking, um, than this sort of emphasis on uh, therapy, you know, of it's going to make you feel so good. And then I would, you know, I'd read a chapter out of the Bible and be like, well, I don't really feel any different. Like I'm not really getting any, I'm not getting anything out of this. So why am I doing it? And I just want to put in sort of a word as we, as we return to normal, um, you know, it's okay to read a chapter a day out of the Bible and, you know, just the long arc of doing that over and over again, building that habit and the long-term effect that it has as the, as the word gets um, written onto our hearts. I think we shouldn't downplay that um, in, in favor of sort of a, a immediate emotional response. Um, as it relates specifically to prayer, I think that's all true. I think also, as we think about prayer as a means of grace, I think about the conversation that we had um, a couple of weeks ago about persecution and Christians who live deeply persecuted in underground communities. Um, some are very, you know, blessed to be able to have underground churches where they're able to congregate and have a pro public proclamation of the word to have the sacraments. Um, but like, let's take the case of the, the Christian couple that we mentioned in North Korea. I mean, there is no public profession of the word there. There is no uh, uh, community in which to do baptism and sacraments. I mean, prayer is what is accessible. It is what is offered. And, you know, there's a lot of debate about, you know, I think sort of the, a technical debate about prayer as a means of grace. And, you know, is it a capital M? Is it a lowercase M? You know, um, that's an interesting conversation. Um, I, I, I'm speaking less to that and speaking more to the fact that, you know, for a lot of Christians who live deep in deeply persecuted areas, um, prayer is incredibly important 
and I think is a real, is a real way um, that Christians are able to receive uh, grace from the Lord. I, I think personally, um, I don't know if you've ever read or uh, silence or seen the movie. Um, uh, but I, I, I went, I remember when I saw the movie uh, in theaters with a friend and, you know, that, that first scene where they come upon the community and they're so excited that a priest is there because they can finally receive the sacraments. And you realize for, for still a lot of Christians today, that is the, that is the real experience of um, being so pushed underground that their only quote unquote public profession of faith is looks a lot like Daniel uh, in Babylon. And it's uh, being able to find time hidden away in their house uh, to, to commune with the Lord via prayer. And I think as Christians who live in a re- in relatively pr- in relative privilege in America with a lot of freedom, um, we should be really mindful of that and then take advantage of our opportunity to pray and pray often and pray publicly. So, yeah, I, um, I was reminded as you were talking about Marshall McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan, who was a 20th century um, thinker, and he, he was one who coined the phrase, the medium is the message. And he's a Christian, and he, he, uh, he said that he never knew a Christian who didn't follow from their faith that didn't first stop praying. And there's something that is definitely intimately bound with the strength of our faith and the amount of our prayer. I'm sure that there are exceptions, exceptions out there for people, but um, whether or not it means a grace, I think this is good for me to remember. It's been helpful for me to think about and hopefully helpful for other people. The reason it's a means of grace for the Christian, while prayer is a means of grace, means of grace for the Christian, is that Christ is always interceding for us on our behalf to the Father. And when we pray, we there's like a there's like a, a jet stream there that we like hop into and get whisked away towards that. Um, it's not something that we initiate. In that sense, we don't start up a conversation between the Father and the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are recipients and beneficiaries of that. And we 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 roll along in that again, that river, we whisk away in that river, the ocean stream that's there. I have in my mind the uh, finding Nemo, the EAC. That's what that's what's the image that's in my head. <laughs> Our generation is is totally uh, the any image of a jet stream is is that. Um, so I think that's why it is a means of grace. And yes, it is a, it is a mystical, uh, amazing thing. And to your point of whether or not we're always feeling it, that, stop me if I told you about this, but the Sully Sullenberger uh, um, miracle in the Hudson when he landed. Mm-hmm. So uh, I tell you what he said in his interview after he landed. Uh-uh. So uh, he lands on the, the Hudson saves everyone's life. I mean, it's, it's a miracle. Everyone, like people who went through it, like this is a miracle, incredible. And one of the things that he said was, uh, he said every day, every time he had thrown, he put a little deposit into his account so that when it was time to make a major withdrawal, which is what happened, he was, all the cash was there for liquidity for the rest of these people. And every time he flew, he was a very precise person. I mean, he went through everything. He did all the checks. He knew exactly how the plane operated. And for years and years and years, nothing happened. But when it hit the fan, who was there? Sully. And he had been preparing all this time. And for those of us, there's something encouraging there. We can say, even if we don't feel it, we are 
putting just a quarter into our account uh, for the time we might need to make a withdrawal and it's there for us. And all of a sudden it floods in. You know, we will all have these experiences where like do something for like a month and it feels like nothing's happening, whether it's reading a book or working out, like, and all of a sudden like everything just kind of lights go on. And we wonder what's happened those past months. And it's like, I, I don't know. But when it was needed, uh, there was this moment of fruit and it's great. Mm-hmm. So we're, uh, we're running out of time here, but um, you know, we, we, these are, these means of grace are given us for a reset and oh, not they're given for us for all of life, but they can be especially meaningful to us now as we perhaps start making new rhythms or um, want to be encouraged in keeping up old rhythms that, that the father has given to us the word, whether that's who read personally or corporately or during the gather publicly or just with, among friends, the sacraments that's taken during worship and prayer um, together and privately. These are means that God has given us to strengthen our faith and to benefit from them. Uh, For sure. Any, yeah. Uh, I love talking about this. I, I'm glad I, uh, yeah. Well, uh, any, any closing points from you? No, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, these things are always important and, you know, these things have definitely been sort of a discussion about, you know, the ordinary means of grace and, and churches, you know, refocusing on them as the structure of their, of their liturgy and their worship has, has been a topic far before COVID. And, um, but I do think you're onto something as you sort of frame this whole conversation, which is, you know, how do we think about that in light of this great reset? Because um, I think you're, you're exactly right. Um, coming back into worship uh, and approaching normalcy. Um, it's going to be a question of what is normal. And uh, as Christians, we, we believe it's, it's the ordinary means of grace. We think it's the, the word proclaimed um, and preached, the sacraments and prayer. And, you know, the best way that we can serve our, our congregations and the best way we can serve the world is by uh, committing to those things. So I, I just really like the whole way you framed it. I think it's, you know, it's always important, but, you know, more important now. <laughs> Well, awesome. Robert, thanks for those closing thoughts. And to keep with the uh, plane theme, we'll land the plane here, leave it on the tarmac uh, for next time, maybe put it in the hangar for a week. But thank you all so much for listening. Uh, you can follow Robert Hassler at RD Hassler. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Stockdale. Will, uh, please leave us a review uh, and uh, like us. Uh, yeah, leave us leave us a, a, a review both in the stars and written if you want. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with y'all next week.